Welcome to the Nigel Lee Archive, brought to you by Living Leadership, where every fortnight we share with you a sermon from the late Nigel Lee to encourage you in your walk with the Lord. Here's today's message. A woman wandered into W.H. Smith and Sons recently, I think it was just before Christmas, and she was wandering around looking very lost, really, if she wasn't used to being in such a place, and the Master came rushing over there and said, Madam, can I help you? Yes, yeah, they're done. I want to buy a Christmas present for my husband. Well, said the manager, had you thought of buying him a book? No, he's already got one of those, she said. <laughs> Books can get lonely. And you all need lots. And we've got new books on the bookstore. There's a whole number of them out there. Um, the God You're Looking For by Bill Hybels. Many of you have found Bill Hybels' uh, chapters based on stuff that he's done in that uh, extraordinary church uh, that he leads in America. Those chapters are very helpful. Um, have a look at that one. This Philip Yante's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, has probably, in the last year or two, sold more copies than I think any other um, Christian book on the market. It's, um, it's been astonishingly popular and helpful and spoken about, and uh, you've a chance to get a copy if you haven't seen one. What's so amazing about grace? And then this one by Steve Chalk: How to succeed as a parent? That's an optimistic title, isn't it? <laughs> but ten tips for busy mums and dads. Um, there's books like that there as well. Whether you can bring them back after some years and say it didn't work and get Kim to. Um, give you the money back. I don't know. You can discuss that with him. Anyway, let's um, let's pray and then we'll begin to look into God's word. God, our Father, we again are so pleased that you're a God of, of mercy and acceptance of people like us. And if it were not true, if the resurrection wasn't true, we couldn't be here this morning before you. But we do pray that as we uh, spend now half an hour or so just thinking about your word, that you would accept the responses of our hearts and lead us to worship you and live for you with integrity and commitment and in a way that pleases you. Open up your word to us, we do pray. Amen. Have you ever heard people talking about you when they didn't know that you were listening? Has it been embarrassing? What would you feel if you heard somebody praying for you and uh, they didn't know that you were listening? I guess it could be a little bit scary, you know. What do they know about me? What what, what are they going to come out with? Oh, Lord, bless Nigel and give him the gift of clarity, especially when he preaches. Grant him refreshment of Spirit and give him energy, Lord. And I'm thinking, oh no, they think I'm some dried up, lazy clothhead who can't string two thoughts together in a straight line. That's the way it tends to affect me. Um, or expressed properly, um, being prayed for, personally by name, by someone who, who knows you, can be very affirming and, and helpful. We could all do with more of it, probably. 
it can be encouraging and supportive and uh, directional, the sort of prayer that we would benefit from. In the chapter that we have been looking at now for uh, five, and this is the sixth week here at Mighton, um, John chapter 17. If you want to turn to it, um, it is actually on uh, page 1085. There are Bibles available. Those that know the drill simply put one hand up now, even if they're seated in the front row, Claire. Um, and somebody brings you a Bible. And then you turn, if you wish, to the page uh, named, 1085. Are we going to run out? Almost. There's two more needed. Oh, here comes Ken with an armful. Father Christmas. Page 1085. In John chapter 17, we, we seem to be on holy ground, really. We are hearing Jesus himself pray to his Father in heaven about his work, because it is nearly accomplished, about his disciples, about the principles that he has brought to bear in what he has been doing for them and amongst them over the previous three years, how he views them, what their future is, and so on. Now, usually when Jesus uh, prayed at length, he prayed alone. So we have no idea what he said. It's often recorded, for instance, that he used to go out early in the morning into the hills to pray, after an hour or two before dawn, or up into a mountain at night, just to pray and just to linger a longer time in the presence of God his Father. We read in the Gospel that he sought out lonely places in order to be able to pray. But John chapter 17 is a remarkable exception to that general rule. Because here he is praying at some length. It is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus in the whole Bible. You may say it's the longest passage of conversation within the Trinity that we ever hear. But uh, he prays at length in the presence of witnesses so they know what he said and uh, can write it down. And the wonderful thing for us here at Mighton this morning is that in this prayer, prayed so long ago, he is praying for us, too. The Mighton congregation of Salzburg, we're not actually named like that, but if you were to look at verse 20, Jesus says, my prayer is not for them, not just for the disciples who are around, not for them alone. I pray also for all those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus could foresee, you see, um, a period when the gospel had been carried to all continents and to the ends of the earth, including to us, and we, we have the chance to overhear him praying for us and sensing the things that he longed for us to know and experience and become like and so on. So during these first six weeks of this new year, um, we've been looking at the chapter, not giving it very, very close exposition line by line, but we have been highlighting, as if with, with a sort of yellow underliner, different aspects of what he prayed for the church, and we have intended it to be something of a, a vision statement, if you like, from the beginning of the new year. He's been praying that his disciples might be really joyful, joyful people. He's been praying about their unity together, one heart and mind. He's been praying about their stability as they, they, uh, they stand on the rock of the truth. He's been praying about their missionary heart, their, their longing for other people 
who are not yet Christian to come into that, uh, into that family. But today we come to the last three verses of the whole chapter, the climax, if you like, where Jesus is talking about our final destination. Verse 24. Verse 24, right at the end of the chapter. Father, he says, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. Jesus prays two things for us in that passage. Number one, that we might be with him ultimately where he is. That's the destination. Not merely somewhere in a happy afterlife surviving beyond this world, but specifically with him. He has said as much already in John chapter 14. End of verse 2 and verse 3, he said to the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. As Tony was saying, we've just been involved in uh, Mission Week this, uh, these last seven days um, in the University of Warwick, and there have been lots of arguments, as you can imagine. Uh, it's quite fun. And uh, arguments with some who would say like this, if I live a good life, why can't I just go to heaven? Because I've lived a good life. Why bring Christ into it? And all of us have been trying to explain, look, that's the point of heaven. It is where Christ is. If you like, that's the definition of the thing. It's wanting everything that he gives, but excluding him, that actually reveals the root problem of a person's heart. Wanting everything that God can give us, but wanting to keep God himself out of it. That's actually what began to go wrong in the Garden of Eden right back at the beginning of Genesis. I want the world. I want to enjoy everything that God has made possible for me. I don't want to listen to him or obey him. People have tried to create a heaven on earth without God. That has been the basic experiment of the 20th century. To see whether we can live without reference to God. And he hasn't worked. And then people turn around and argue that God should give them heaven in heaven, but stay himself well out of it. Jesus said to the thief dying beside him on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul, the early Christian preacher and apostle, about to be on trial for his life, refers to his thought process as he was waiting for that in Philippians chapter 1, 23. He said, you know, really, I want to depart and be with Christ. Now, why does Jesus want believers with him? Why does he want us with him? Well, he says so in these verses in John 17, so that we may see his glory. His unshielded glory in heaven. The glory that he had in relation to the Father before the world even began. 
a late 19th, early 20th century poet. Put it like this. Face to face with Christ my Saviour. Face to face. What will it be when with rapture I behold him? Jesus Christ who died for me. Only faintly now I see him with the darkling veil between. But a blessed day is coming when his glory shall be seen. Now why does Jesus want that? Why does he ask his father for that? For us? As he explains, he wants his disciples to get a notion of how much the father loves him. And then it will begin to dawn on us how much he loves us too. That's what he actually said. One day you will know much more than you do now. How much the Father in heaven loves. When you begin to see how much he loves his son and gave up his son in order that you might be welcomed into heaven as well. This love between the Father and the Son within the Trinity is the ultimate tap root, if I can put it like that, of all our hope, of why Christ came, our destiny, of the gospel itself. You can't get more ultimate than that. The love between the Father and the Son, out of which then came everything else that is Christianity. And then comes the next thing in the prayer, where Jesus promises to continue making God known to us. Verse 25. Righteous Father, he says, the world does not know you. The world meaning that the mass of its uh, people. The, the population of the world, by and large, the majority of them, don't know or recognize God. And we've seen that clearly during the course of the week in, in Warwick. They're still in the dark. There is a blindness. People have eyes, but they can't see. But, says Jesus in verse 26, I have made you known to them. Jesus is revealing God to those who become his disciples. There is a work of revelation going on, and he is promising to continue to do so in the future. It's the last thing he says in his prayer. He commits himself to continuing. And aren't you grateful? Continuing to make God known. Age after age and person after person. Why? As he puts it, so that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I may be in them. You see. He will continue to reveal God. So that we may increasingly grow into a loving community. As God lives and works in us. So that we reflect out to our generation. Our relatives, family, friends, work colleagues. Something of the reality of who God is. That's his longing for the church. We thought of, of his prayer for their joy, their unity, and so on and so forth. And then it culminates in this. That we live in such a way as to reflect the love that there is within the Trinity. Is actually part of being of the missionary church that we were thinking about only a week or two ago. A few weeks ago, I was talking with someone um, who came round to our house um, for an hour or two one evening. 
and she was telling us something of her story. She had been living and working in London, and she had joined an Alpha course in the church. And gone right through the end of ten weeks. And then she started going along to that church regularly on Sunday. And she went Sunday after Sunday. And for three months, not a single person spoke. She would turn up and sit and listen and join in and sing and look around and wonder if she'd recognize anybody from one week to the next. If anybody would introduce themselves to her. She joined a house group. She was someone who was going through a number of problems in her life to do with, with family and relationships and career stuff and so on. She joined a house group. She went one evening to the house group leader's house, he and his wife, and she poured out her heart and her troubles to them. And subsequently, never had a phone call. They never asked her again about the stuff that was going on in her life. She even met him um, sometime later at a business um, meeting. She was working in business in a hotel. And he knew that she knew that it was he. And he said no more than, you're right then. Now, as I tell you that story, um, the ending potentially uh, hasn't come yet and maybe happier. You can feel the pain and the disappointment, can't you? It ought not to be like that. If we were to turn over for a moment or two to um, not John's gospel, but John's first letter. Turn to page, page 1227 in the, uh, in the church Bible, if that's what you're using. 1 John chapter 3. Because there is a section from the middle of chapter 3, verse 11, through to the end of chapter 4, where John is appealing to us as church people to be real in love and, and service and so on in the church. He actually uses the word love 34 times in these 28 verses. Verse 11, 1 John 3. This is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he goes on in the immediately subsequent verses to speak of a character called Cain from Genesis chapter 4. Someone who was outwardly religious, but had no love in his heart. He had the appearance of someone who wanted to worship God. Very careful about coming to worship God. But in his heart, he was just a religious murderer. And before the day is out, he uh, succeeds in killing his brother. He's not the last, is he, of that sort? People who have put such an emphasis on religion, on worship, on wanting to come to God in the correct way, but inside, they are carrying still, even as they come before God, they are carrying jealousies and resentments, and they just cross with people. There's a kind of anger with people, even as they, we are such extraordinary human beings, aren't we? We can come here to worship God, to sing his praises, and yet be just crammed out with with aggression towards other people, which we are unwilling to let let go. That was Cain. Don't be like him. So, what is love? Well, John says, I know you can ask that, uh, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. If any one of you has material possessions, and sees a brother or this sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth, and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. See what John is saying. Love means action, not pious words, but doing something. And John will very quickly list, number one, sacrifice for the sake of others in verse 16. Generosity with what you have, verse 17. Action and truth, not just pious words, verse 18. Supposing a husband um, says that he loves his wife, but when she's sick, he doesn't care. When she's hurting, he doesn't listen. When problems are mounting up, he doesn't lift a finger to help her. Love? No, says John. No, says the Apostle. No, says Jesus. Reality. Action. So Christ clearly is teaching us this simple but obvious, profound thing that membership of his church must include rather more than just turning up at the Sunday morning meeting, drinking a cup of coffee, and disappearing in a holy glow until next week. And then coming back and going around the cycle again. Time for action. And it's simple, it's practical. Think of um, things yourself. We've, we've heard and we don't need to bang on about it, but things like food. Hospitality. An eye for strangers. Like that person in that London church. Or being willing to visit the sick if possible. Or generosity with our money. Now, it's fascinating to see the way John argues this in his letter. Let me read you again verses 19 and 20. This then is how we know we belong to the truth. And how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. Sometimes your heart can condemn you. You can be trolleying along um, in life. And then you start to wonder, am I really a child of God? Has he really started to work in me? Or is this all just imagination? Am I getting anywhere in my Christian life? Is there more to me than just words? And sometimes your heart can be very troubled by those kind of questions. And John knows that. And John is a very wise and gentle and perceptive apostle of Christ. And he says this, sometimes our brotherly, sisterly act of kindness and love can provide us with evidence of God's work in us. You see, evidence that we are truly God's children. Evidence that the love that is there within the Trinity has started to appear in us. And this evidence is much more solid and objective and the ups and downs of our own emotions. Verse 19, this is how you know that you belong to the truth. This is of enormous value psychologically. It provides us with the means to set our hearts at rest in his presence. These things don't save us, of course not. The New Testament is absolutely clear. This is what John is suggesting. By grace are you saved, through faith, not of works. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. 
Prahat Gerizia in God's presence, when we have evidence to bring with us before him of his love beginning to be reproduced in us. And in a world that sees less and less of that, it is extraordinarily powerful. And so Jesus is praying, Father, what we have started, these believers, I have revealed you to them and I have given them your word and they have come to know that you sent me. They have become disciples. And Lord, I pray this and that and the other for them as we look down through the centuries and down into the future. And Lord, one day I want them all to be gathered up to be with me where I am. I want them to see your glory. And I want that process, Lord, Father, and God, to begin now. As we start to see something of God, we begin to be, become like him. Real love, not just words. And as we go, John teaches us that that has the astonishing effect of increasing the assurance of our own sense of salvation and security before him. He knows it. And he challenges us to walk in his way. Thank you for joining us today. The Nigel Lee Archive is brought to you as a podcast by Living Leadership. For more information on the Nigel Lee Archive or Living Leadership's other ministries, please visit www.livingleadership.org. God bless.